opening up uh, with another cut from our good friend Mo Alilech, the Algerian songster and musician, uh, player of the Mondol, which is the Algerian lute, now living on the west coast of the United States. Uh, this is uh, The Counter Vortex with me, Bill Weinberg. And that song from Mo Ali Lech was uh, entitled, instrumental cut, was entitled Hope. Hope, the thing which animates revolutions. Sometimes, uh, you know, you get the feeling that um, in spite of everything, of revolutions it, oh, seemingly inevitably being uh, crushed or betrayed, uh, hope springs eternal, as they say, and people keep doing it again and again and again and again, hoping to actually get it right and to usher in a better social order. And there's a f- still few, you know, a few mad dreamers in this world who are wishing them the best. But um, frequently people get caught up in the geopolitics and get confused. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, last time uh, we were doing a uh, two weeks ago on our last podcast, we did a discussion of Nicaragua and uh, how the um, Sandinista government, which began as a um, a revolutionary regime uh, back in the uh, back in the 1980s, now on its second time in power. Uh, has becoming increasingly corrupt and oppressive and is now facing a new revolutionary movement against it. So uh, the cycle goes around. And we're going to be uh, doing a little contrast today between uh, the revolutions in Nicaragua, or what's rapidly turning into, it seems, a revolutionary movement in Nicaragua, um, and the revolutionary movement in Syria. And there's some, you know obvious parallels which can be drawn between, for starters, the Nicaraguan Revolution of 1979, when the Sandinistas first came to power and overthrew the U.S.-backed dictatorship, and what's been happening in Syria since the revolution first broke out there in March of 2011. For starters, Nicaragua had been under a hereditary family dictatorship where power was passed on from one dictator to his son. And, uh, you know, sort of a family dictatorship, which was a institutionalized kleptocracy uh, that stayed in power through cronyism. In Nicaragua, it was uh, around the Somoza family, which had been actually placed in power by the, um, essentially placed in power by the U.S., going all the way back to the 1930s about, with, by the U.S., uh, military occupation, U.S. Marines occupation of Nicaragua going back to the 1930s. We'll have more to say about that later on in the show. And power was kept, uh, you know, in the hands of the Somoza family dictatorship until the revolution of 1979. In Syria, it's been a very similar system, a hereditary family dictatorship, a kleptocracy, which stays in power through cronyism in the hands of um, the uh, the Assad family. And similarly, power has been passed down from father to son uh, ever since uh, the, uh, the Assad family first came to power in a coup d'etat in 1971, just as the uh, Somoza family came to power in a coup d'etat, and I believe it was 1936. So um, extremely uh, a clear parallel right there, okay? Clear parallel. Um, and now, you know... Um, 
we jump forward a generation. Now the Sandinistas are in power their second time around, where the first time around it had re- it was a, a movement which was directly revolutionary. It had just come to power through a revolution. And the, the whole country was really, uh, except for, uh, you know, the crony, the cronies of the Somoza dictatorship who had been deposed, there was a period of a few years at least when really all of Nicaragua was uh, pretty much united behind the revolution and this real spirit of, of idealism and, uh, and optimism sweeping the country in spite of the fact that they were looking at a very challenging situation, including, you know, uh, the hostile superpower to the north. Um, uh, inevitably attempting to destabilize their revolution. Well, now that the uh, Sandinistas are in power a second time around, they really aren't revolutionary anymore. There's what you might call left populist, or perhaps not even left, but merely populist, um, and increasingly facing a... uh, a revolutionary movement. I mean, the, uh, the, the protest movement, which has um, emerged in Nicaragua, is now demanding, as the slogan of the Arab Spring put it, demanding the downfall of the regime, demanding that Ortega, that President Daniel Ortega, step down. And uh, just over the weekend, in fact, I'm actually speaking right now on... Um, the 10th of June, and uh, just yesterday there were more killings in Nicaragua, in the town of Hinotega in the north, a, um, a roadblock which was maintained by anti-government protesters, was apparently attacked by uh, pro-government paramilitaries, and uh, two people were killed. So um, things are, are not de-escalating in Nicaragua. But uh, just to, to illustrate the um, what I call the uh, divide and conquer scam, which is inherent to the state system, is uh, the way the um, the Sandinistas, which came to power in a revolutionary movement against a corrupt hereditary family dictatorship in 1979 initially, have been pitted against the revolutionary movement in Syria, which is similarly attempting to bring down an hereditary family dictatorship. People will, of course, recall the um, horrific series of chemical attacks and other atrocities which have been committed by the Bashar Assad regime against the people of Syria in the areas under rebel control and There actually was an investigative commission which was empowered by the United Nations to look into these attacks. And after um, the attack which happened in April of last year, in 2017, at Khan Shikun, the uh, UN Commission of Inquiry actually did determine that the attack had been carried out by the Assad regime. But that commission of inquiry had its, um, uh, its mandate it's from the United Nations expired due to the, um, the veto of Russia on the Security Council back in November. And causing me a great deal of anguish is the fact that in that vote on the Security Council back in I believe it was November of last year, voting along with Russia to squelch the continuation of the Syria war war crimes investigation, 
were Venezuela, Bolivia, Cuba, and Nicaragua. So all of these uh, countries, which are, you know, ostensibly under left-wing governments in Latin America, ostensibly with the support of the common people and the peasants, uh, you know, trying to win some justice against the traditional oligarchies, which have ruled those countries, uh, are now voting against the interests of the people in Syria who are similarly fighting for the interests of the common folk against an entrenched oligarchy. It's absolutely maddening, and nothing sums up more the, uh, as I say, the the divide-and-conquer scam, which is the very essence of the state system. And it seems to me that... uh, a, a government such as that of the Sandinistas, which initially back in 1979 came to power in a popular revolution against a hereditary corrupt family dictatorship, would see itself as in solidarity with a revolution in Syria, which is attempting to topple a corrupt hereditary family dictatorship, rather than throwing them under the bus. And uh, maybe this says much as to... Um, as to why the Sandinista government itself is now facing a new revolutionary movement in Nicaragua. And I would like to think that that revolutionary movement in Nicaragua sees itself, or the protest movement, which is, seems to be rapidly evolving into an actual revolutionary movement, um, sees itself as in solidarity with the opposition in Syria, which similarly began back in 2011 as a protest movement and eventually evolved into an openly revolutionary movement due to relentless repression from the regime. We'll have more to say about this later on in our discussion tonight. There's been, uh, you know, a a lot of the, um, you know, pro-regime elements, and there certainly is, you know, there continues to be some base of support for the government in Nicaragua for Daniel Ortega and um, his Sandinista party. Um, and they've been, uh, you know, making the case that the, um, that the opposition are all, uh, you know, bourgeois types who are threatened by the left populist program of the government. I'm not so sure about that. I think that uh, probably there's a, um, a, you know, a spectrum of um, elements which are on board with the with the with the protest movement now, which probably includes some uh, you know more bourgeois types, and also probably includes a lot of you know proletarian types and peasants and um, commoners, so to speak. And I'm going to particularly highlight a couple of cases where the supposedly left populist government of Daniel Ortega has been coming to act more and more like any elitist, oligarchical, U.S.-backed, messed-up regime in Latin America and has obviously, clearly, been facing opposition from the peasantry. And I'm going to uh, first note one particularly egregious case. This whole protest movement, which has emerged in recent weeks, really since April, in, uh, in Nicaragua, was sort of presaged by a, a similar episode of unrest last November, November of 2017, 
when um, on uh, November 25th, the International Day for Elimination of Violence Against Women march in uh, the capital, Managua, was ironically shut down by the riot police who blocked the streets off shortly after the demonstrations gathered. National police troops also detained several women who were traveling to Managua from elsewhere around the country to attend the march, with vehicles stopped and seized with delegations from Chinandega, Masaya, and Maragalpa, uh, which I will point out, by the way, is traditionally the, uh, this is, you know, the, the real deep peasant part of Nicaragua, which has traditionally been, you know, the heartland of, of support for the Sandinistas. Uh, particularly uh, Matagalpa. Matagalpa was always, uh, that's where the, the revolution was strongest back in the uh, you know, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, <clears throat> the Managua March was emotionally charged as it was led by Elea Valle, a campesina woman whose husband, son, and daughter were killed two weeks earlier in a raid by army troops on their home in the country's eastern rainforest. The army is portraying, or this was back in uh, November, uh, the uh, army was portraying the November 12th massacre at the village of La Cruz del Rio Grande in the um, South Caribbean Coast Autonomous Region of Nicaragua as a drug raid, saying that the slain were delinquents, quote-unquote, and the 20 pounds of marijuana was found in the homestead. This is a total lie, Valle told Nicaraguan Daily La Prensa back in November. She said that her son, Francisco, 12, and daughter, Yohesel, 16, who were among those slain in the incident, were gunned down unarmed, and that the cannabis was planted by the soldiers. Valle said the raid was actually planned as a political assassination. And the target was her husband, Francisco Perez Davila, who was suspected of collaborating with armed insurgents in the area. Perez was the brother of Rafael Davila, a.k.a. Comandante Colocho, the leader of a, an armed faction of peasants who had, or an armed band of peasants who had, uh, you know, taken up arms against the increasingly authoritarian government of Daniel Ortega. Uh, Valle was, at that time, and I believe this has not changed, demanding the return of the bodies of her slain kin, fearing that they may have been dumped in a mass grave. And the Archbishop of Nicaragua, Cardinal Leopoldo Brenes, had also called on the army to return the remains of those killed in the raid. And when I was writing about this 14 days after the uh, deadly incident on uh, November 27th of last year, President Ortega still maintained his silence on the affair. And on that day, he instead dedicated his speech to his friend Fidel Castro on the first anniversary of his death. So, I mean, do I really have to point out the irony here that, you know, here is, uh, you know, Daniel Ortega, leader of the supposedly revolutionary Sandinista government, delivering an homage to Fidel Castro while his regime is acting more like that of a, uh, of a, of a U.S.-supported client state such as Colombia, carrying out, seemingly carrying out state terror against regime opponents in the guise of the war on drugs 
in the guise of narcotics enforcement. I mean, exactly the same trick that, uh, you know, the U.S.-backed regimes in, um, in Colombia and Peru and so on have been using for generations. So um, this is certainly a, uh, an example which militates against the thesis that, uh, you know, all of the opposition in Nicaragua are, um, you know, bourgeois types. I mean, these are, this is in the, you know, the most remote, uh, you know, uh, rainforest region of the country out there in the so-called South Caribbean Coast Autonomous Region, you know, where there aren't even any paved roads. So um, I don't think that you can uh, really claim that these, uh, you know, these armed peasant bands, which have taken up, um, taken up arms against the regime out there in the eastern rainforest or like, you know, part of some neocon conspiracy or something. <clears throat> and uh, the second thing I want to talk about is you know, one of the reasons that the, um, that the peasants out there in the eastern rainforest are um, so pissed is because of this monstrously irresponsible interoceanic canal scheme that the, uh, that the Ortega government is now pushing, bringing in um, Chinese capital and a, a Hong Kong-based company to actually, you know, blast through the rainforest and uh, create a new interoceanic canal to uh, rival or replace the Panama Canal. And this, of course, you know, would destroy vast areas of rainforest and farmland and would also necessitate the expropriation of the lands of thousands of peasants and their forced relocation. So here's another bitter irony. One of the, uh, you know, the, the key things which led to the Nicaraguan Revolution back in the 1970s was, uh, you know, the expropriation of peasant lands by the uh, Somoza family and, and, and their cronies. And uh, here, the Sandinista government is doing exactly the same thing, expropriating the lands of the peasants for some mega development project, which nobody is going to benefit from but the regime. Well, of course, the regime claims otherwise. They claim uh, that, uh, you know, it's going to mean economic development and jobs and blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, the peasants out there in the, in the eastern rainforest are saying, no, thank you. We want to work our lands. We don't want to, uh, you know, uh, be compensated for our, our lands with, uh, you know, construction jobs, which are going to dry up when the, when the canal is finished. So um, another case I want to um, just briefly touch on is uh, Francisca Ramirez Torres, who is a leader of the movement against this planned canal scheme also out there in the eastern rainforest of the South Caribbean Coast Autonomous Region, who has been um, repeatedly harassed and threatened by the authorities, most recently, um, just about a year ago, in June of last year, June of, uh, actually, I'm sorry, two years ago, June of 2016, she was actually arrested by national police agents at, um, in a raid on her village. June 25th, 2016, uh, Ramirez was leading a workshop at her village of La Fonseca in the um, South Caribbean Coast Autonomous Region, where uh, she was teaching local residents to build fuel-efficient wood-burning ovens. So, you know, sort of an ecological, um, sustainable development-type project. Uh, she was detained along with her husband and four other long local campesinos and four foreigners who were participating in the workshop, mostly Mexicans. The event was part of the Mesoamerican 
caravan for good life, or caravana para buen vivir, which um, was organizing support for local communities opposed to the canal projects. No formal charges were um, announced, but and I believe that she, uh, you know, has since been released. But uh, this is just one of uh, of several such incidents where um, she has been either detained, harassed, or threatened for her vocal opposition to the canal project. Uh, a whole string of such incidents, which has, um, which has led Amnesty International to assail the canal plan and um, accuse the Nicaraguan government of, quote, placing business before the future of the country and its people. That was in a, um, an Amnesty International report from, from last August. So once again... <clears throat> the government placing business before the future of the country and its people. Doesn't this sound familiar? Isn't that what we usually accuse, uh, you know, U.S.-backed regimes in um, in Latin America of doing? Uh, all of these, you know, gigantic uh, hydroelectric and oil pipeline scams uh, and schemes, mega development schemes, which, um, and, you know, mega mining schemes, which the peasants in Mexico, Peru, Colombia, etc., have been, um, you know, standing up and protesting against for the past several generations now and meeting repression for their efforts. So it's all beginning to smell, if you ask me, like another case of meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And uh, you know, certainly that's what, you know, the, the Nicaraguan opposition is now saying is that, you know, Ortega has established a new dictatorship. Now, I am not saying that, you know, the um, <clears throat> the dictatorship, which you could argue is now being consolidated in Nicaragua, is equivalent to that of the Somoza regime in terms of its you know, levels of repression, by no means. But I will say that there is a disturbing sense of deja vu. That does not imply equivalency. But there is a disturbing sense of deja vu. Since I'm inevitably going to be accused of being an anarchist for um, daring to raise these criticisms, <laughs> well, 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 let's get one out in the open. Uh, anarchism was uh, extremely instrumental in the emergence of the Nicaraguan Revolution. If we go all the way back to the 1930s, we uh, encounter an episode in which uh, both the Somoza dictatorship was established and in which the, uh, the figure from whom the Sandinista movement took their name uh, made his claim to fame, Augusto Cesar Sandino, who was the uh, great Nicaraguan revolutionary of the 1930s, who um, alone, he was you know, the only one of the um, Nicaraguan resistance figures who... Can, who refused a, uh, to accept the peace pact, but maintained his insurgency until the last U.S. Marine left Nicaragua. The U.S. Marines had been occupying Nicaragua in these years. Partially, I will point out, because there was a, um, an, an idea at this point to um, establish a, uh, a, an interoceanic canal through Nicaragua. <laughs> and... Um, Ultimately, the idea was abandoned, but the, the United States wanted the country to be under control. So uh, Nicaragua was being occupied by the U.S. Marines at this point. And uh, finally, um, Augusto Cesar Sandino 
only laid down arms in 1934 when finally the um, the U.S. Uh, occupation ended and the last Marine uh, left the country. And Sandino was an anarchist. He was directly inspired by um, by the anarchists in Spain who had seized power in um, in Catalonia during the same period. Uh, <clears throat> And we're, you know, taking back, uh, taking back the land from uh, the landlords and so on in um, in rural Spain. He was di- directly inspired. He was an, he was an anarchist. And the flag, the flag that he waved, was um, directly inspired by that of the Spanish anarchist. It was a um, a red and black field, red for communism and collectivism, and black for 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 anarchism and the negation of authority and the state, and. Uh, he had quite a following among the Nicaraguan peasants during this period. He finally, um, he signed, he was killed in a treacherous ambush, very much in the, uh, in the, same, in the style of um, Emiliano Zapata in Mexico in well, 19, uh, 1919, I believe it was. Very similar situation. He was um, lured to, a, um, to, a, to, to peace talks, actually, at the Nicaraguan National Palace. Uh, you know, to sort of solidify the deal that he was going to lay down arms now that the U.S. Marines had left. And uh, while he was leaving the meeting, he was um, gunned down and assassinated in an ambush, probably by leaders of the National Guard, which were led by General Anastasio Somoza, um, who, which had been established by the U.S. Marines during their, um, their occupation of Nicaragua. And 1936... Uh, Somoza had his military coup d'etat and actually became the dictator of Nicaragua and uh, began his hereditary family dictatorship, which maintained in power almost continuously uh, until 1979, when finally it was overthrown by the Sandinista movement, which took its um, inspiration directly from Augusto Cesar Sandino and the insurgency that he waged back in the 1930s. Uh, but the new Sandinistas, of course, were not, they were not anarchists. I mean, they were taking their tip from uh, the Cuban Revolution, and they saw themselves as, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> in the Soviet camp in the Cold War. They were not anarchists. But because they were taking their tip from Cesar Sandino, they adopted his flag. And uh, what became, you know, the party flag, um, and you know, which was just seen u- ubiquitously. It was seen more than the Nicaragua national flag in Nicaragua in those years. And I visited Nicaragua in those years. I, I saw all of this was the same flag that um, Sandino had waved, which was the, uh, you know, a, a red and black field directly inspired by that of the Spanish anarchist of the 1930s. Only now the, uh, the Sandinista party put their, their letters on it. FSLN, Sandinista National Liberation Front. So, um, the uh, the Nicaraguan Revolution had its um, had its roots in anarchism and uh, and even as you know the the Sandinista Party uh, you know saw itself as more of a you know vanguardist Leninist kind of an outfit by this point uh, you know taking its tip from Cuba um, there was still I would argue in the um, certainly in the in the Campesino movement which uh, was a a backbone of support for the Sandinista revolution uh, there, you know, it really was, you know, self-organized peasants who were taking back the land. Uh, and this, I would say, would actually be more in um, the original tradition of Sandino and more in a, um, uh, and, uh, a tradition somewhat rooted in anarchism. 
Uh, the one thing which, of course, they had in common with Sandino was their anti-imperialism and their sort of left-wing nationalism and standing up to standing up to the Yankees. And uh, I believe that also, you know, some of the uh, reanimated peasant movement, Campesino movement in Nicaragua today, which is, um, uh, you know, opposing the Ortega government and, uh, you know, defending their lands or attempting to defend their lands against this 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 land grab for the canal project also see themselves as uh, rooted in the original spirit of Sandinismo. All right, now let's turn our attention to Syria. And I'm going to point out that the revolutionary movement, which has been gaining ground in Syria since 2011, also has anarchist roots. And, you know, now... now you hear all about in the headlines about all of these utterly ruthless armed factions and the jihadists and ISIS and the Nusra Front and blah, blah, blah. And of course, they're there. I'm by no means dismissing them. Uh, and it has become a really horrific situation. No need to elaborate on that. What everybody is overlooking, however, is that the original civil, grassroots, popular democratic opposition movement, civil resistance movement, which began the revolution back in March of 2011, still exists, particularly in the uh, form of the uh, so-called local coordination councils, the LCCs, which initially began sort of as neighborhood affinity groups, to um, organize the protest demanding the downfall of the Assad regime and later actually became the de facto local government in areas of uh, the country where the regime had collapsed. The LCCs actually seized control and were actually governing their own territory through a uh, sort of a grassroots democratic or popular democratic ethic of, uh, of council-based direct democracy. And this, of course, is very much an anarchist ethic, and it was it emerged explicitly as an anarchist ethic. The LCCs were really the um, one of the earliest organizers and, and earliest um, political theorists of the of the LCCs, the local coordination councils, was Omar Aziz, who was a left wing anarchist in Damascus, and a, um, an, a an opponent of the regime. He actually came back from exile when the revolution broke out and uh, began uh, organizing the LCCs. And eventually, uh, you know, it has to be said that, um, or, it, or it should be pointed out, that what began as a unarmed civil opposition movement based around the LCCs, um, eventually, within a year or so, probably before 2011 was out, was beginning to turn into an armed insurgency. Now, this is due to the brutal repression that it met with, where, um, you know, time and again, over and over again, serially unarmed, peaceful protests demanding the downfall of the regime were massacred by the security forces. And finally, a... Um, a popular militia began to emerge, initially led by figures who had actually defected from the Syrian National Army, uh, and this became the the so the FSA or the Free Syrian Army, which initially began as a self-defense force to protect the uh, the protests from 
attacked by the security forces. Of course, things escalated and it eventually became an armed insurgency. The FSA had emerged while Omar Aziz was still on the scene and um, he was sort of grappling with the emergence of this phenomenon and eventually he came to recognize that indeed there had to be a, um, a military dimension to the to the resistance, to the pro-democracy movement, but he always insisted that, uh, you know, the civil movement had to be in charge and the power should be flowing up from below from the LCCs and that ultimately the FSA should be subordinate to the LCCs. Now, Omar Aziz was, um, of course, eventually arrested by the secret police in November of 2012, and he died in prison shortly thereafter. But uh, the LCCs continue even now to exist in the uh, areas of the country where the opposition is still in control, chiefly Idlib province in the north. Uh, You will recall that a couple of years ago, the regime was actually on the brink of falling. It was on the brink of collapse. And then it was propped up by massive Russian military intervention and uh, due to this, you know, massive Russian aerial support, it has now reconquered most of the country. The chief area which is still under, uh, under the control of, um, of the opposition is Idlib province in the north. And again, you hear about the news refront and all of these jihadist militias who are in power in Idlib. And it's true, they do have a presence there. But there are also areas of Idlib where the LCCs continue to be in power even now with the same secular, democratic ethic that they had when they first began organizing against the regime way back in March of 2011. There are still towns in Idlib province even now which are governed by the the local coordination councils. And in fact... There have even been, in some of these towns, there have even been particularly, there was one particularly heroic incident in July of 2017 in the town of Sarakeb in uh, Idlib province, where uh, the, uh, the LCCs actually, or the LCC in, in the town of Sarakeb actually led a, um, a civil uprising against the gunmen of... Uh, I'll just loosely call them the Nusra Front. It's, a, it's sort of splintered, but the sort of the Kayatist faction, which has got various um, militias in, um, in Idlib province. These Kayatist elements, these Nusra Front types, had tried to take over Sadakeb, and um, the uh, entire populace of the town rose against them and surrounded the gunmen, unarmed, unarmed, but rising against them down to the last citizen, seemingly, and, um, and massively surrounded the, the gunmen and, and marched them out of town and said, no, thank you. We aren't interested in being under your rule. We, want to, we, we aren't interested in being under your draconian version of Sharia law. We are going to hold our own municipal elections and run our own town in our, um, in our own interest. And just, you know, marched them out of town and liberated their town through a, 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 a grassroots nonviolent uprising. Very much of the in, in much the same way that back probably in uh, 2012 they had had such an uprising which drove the um, Assad forces out of town. They similarly had an uprising to drive the Nusra forces out of town. So um, this movement still survives, and this movement obviously they urgently need 
our solidarity. Urgently need our solidarity. And, you know, again, I would like to, just as I would like to think that um, much of the opposition in Nicaragua today see themselves as in solidarity with the opposition in Syria, uh, you know, we also here in New York City in the United States should also be in solidarity with the Syrian grassroots democratic resistance, which contrary to what much of what you will read from the left, right, and center alike continues to exist in spite of everything, in spite of the genocide of the regime. And I would say that the Assad regime now actually is escalating to genocide. In addition to their uh, serial poisonous gas attacks, you know, they've escalated from mere massacres to, you know, massive aerial bombardment and, and serial chemical weapons attacks now. They've carried out something like 50 over the course of the war. In addition to that, they are also carrying out what the United Nations Human Rights Council has condemned as a systematic extermination, quote, unquote, of disloyal sectors of the populace in the areas which they control. So I hedged for a long time about using the word genocide because that's a word that I treat with the utmost respect. But at this point, I'm prepared to use it. The Assad regime is escalating to genocide. So um, the LCCs, the grassroots, democratic, civil opposition, civil resistance in Syria continues to exist in spite of everything. In spite of the regime escalating to genocide, in spite of, uh, you know, these jihadists like the Nusra Front jumping in on the act, and in spite of, uh, you know, them being eclipsed from the headlines by these utterly ruthless armed actors who are now dominating the news, the LCCs continue to exist and demand our solidarity. We, as um, people who believe in grassroots democracy, and, um, and particularly those of us who are um, inspired by some kind of... Um, uh, vision of direct self-rule, which is informed by anarchism. Because the LCCs, in their origins, were, in fact, and, and of course, their, um, their you know, ethic of um, municipal self-government uh, and, and municipal autonomy has obvious echoes of um, the writings of Murray Bookchin, the late um, eco-anarchist of Vermont, of our own country, the United States, who, um, who died, oh, what, uh, about uh, 10 years ago, I believe, um, and became a real theorist of what he called libertarian municipalism. And he was using libertarian in the old sense of uh, basically anti-authoritarian or anti-statist, not libertarian in the new sense of, uh, you know, free market right. That's not what he meant at all, just to clear that up. <laughs> and uh, the last thing I'm going to touch on is, um, well, I said that Idlib was the last significant area of the country which was still under opposition control. But that's not counting the uh, large area of the country immediately to, um, immediately to the east, northeastern Syria, which um, is under the control of the Kurds and their autonomous zone, which they have dubbed Rojava. And they're a um, kind of a very particular case Unfortunately, they have to some degree been pitted against the main Arab-led Syrian opposition uh, by, again, a divide-and-conquer scheme which is being you know, played by both, I would say, 
Assad, who has been at times, you know, threatening to um, to attack the Rojava Kurds and to crush their autonomous zone, but is also at times posed as their protector and tried to groom them as proxies or allies um, against um, against Turkey, because Turkey, of course, is opposed to any kind of um, Kurdish autonomy. And um, Turkey has been sort of, uh, you know, emerged as the as the patron of the Free Syrian Army and has been attempting to groom them as proxies. So due to, uh, you know, great power intervention in Syria, the uh, the Kurdish and the Arab opposition have been pitted against each other. And there is now actually a um, a direct threat, unfortunately, of a um, Kurdish Arab civil war in northern Syria. And uh, just uh, just recently, of course, the uh, Kurdish canton of Afrin, uh, which was a part of the Rojava Autonomous Zone, was um, seized by Turkish forces who intervened and has essentially now been de facto annexed to Turkey. And unfortunately, there were uh, you know elements of the Free Syrian Army who were cooperating with Turkey in um, in this offensive against Afrin. So already, you know, a chunk has been bitten off of Rojava, which is extremely unfortunate. And the, and the real irony here is that, uh, you know, only famously, the, um, the Rojava experiment and the, uh, the Kurdish autonomous zone in northern Syria is directly inspired by this kind of model of council-based anarchism. And in particular directly inspired by the writings of Murray Bookchin. So um, they've won a lot of support because of this from anarchists here in New York City and the United States and the West who often seem unaware that the general Arab-led Syrian revolution also has anarchist roots and also has an element which is um, directly rooted in this sort of um, uh, radically grassroots democratic council-based democracy, which is informed by anarchism. And unfortunately, uh, you know, the uh, I, this, what really pains me is that, uh, you know, the, the general position of the left in the United States has been shamefully, disgracefully in open support of the Bashar Assad dictatorship. I'm not going to elaborate this on, on this any further tonight because I've already spoken about it on previous episodes. So you can go back and listen to them. <laughs> I think the one that we did two, two weeks ago was all about that. But now what I'm going to say is that you know even among those very, very small minority sectors of the left here in New York City and the United States, who are um, at least opposed to the Assad regime and, um, and are actually interested in loaning some solidarity to the opposition forces in Syria, are also divided between those who see themselves as in solidarity with the Arab-led Syrian revolution and those who specifically see themselves as in solidarity with the Kurdish-led experiment in Rojava. And... A lot of anarchists have been, you know, actually, you know, they've been sort of emphasizing the uh, the contradictions of um, 
of the Free Syrian Army and, you know, the general Arab-led Syrian revolution and pointing out the fact that, you know, the FSA has made accommodations with Turkey and has collaborated with, uh, you know, Turkish forces in their assault on Rojava. Um, And so I'm not dismissing the contradictions. The contradictions are real. Anytime you are going to get involved in any kind of political activity whatsoever, there are going to be contradictions. It's the nature of reality. And particularly if you've been put in a situation such as, you know, Syria, where you are forced to take up arms, you're going to be facing greater contradictions still. And when you're um, put in a situation where you're forced to take up arms in a country such as Syria, which the um, where, where, you know, multiple foreign powers have intervened and are attempting to, you know, groom their own proxies on the ground and turn it into a proxy war, there's going to be greater contradictions yet still. So, of course, there are contradictions. Just as I will point out <laughs> that, you know, the Nicaraguan Revolution back in the 1980s, as inspiring as it was, eventually became a pawn in the Cold War. Uh, you know, I mean, it simply did. They were getting plenty of arms from uh, the Soviet Union via Cuba. And uh, the, Soviet, they, the Soviets were clearly trying to, you know, uh, absorb them into their order. And I remember when I was in Nicaragua in those years, a bit of an aside of an aside here, uh, you know, I remember going into a bookstore and, uh, you know, to see uh, what they had. And, you know, they had, um, you know, biographies of um, Cesar Sandino and stuff like that that you might expect. And, you know, immediately alongside it on the shelf was a favorable biography of Leonid Brezhnev published by, uh, you know, the Spanish language service of the uh, Kremlin propaganda agency. So there were plenty of contradictions in Nicaragua, even back in those idealistic years um, in the 1980s. Let's not kid ourselves. So I'm not dismissing the contradictions that the Syrian revolution is facing, but let's also look at the contradictions that the Rojava revolution is facing. Because they're there as well, of course, obviously. So, um... This is an extremely painful thing to talk about, but uh, let's just get all the cards out on the table. Amnesty International has just released a report protesting the um, annihilation, quote unquote, of the city of Raqqa in the massive U.S. bombardment um, of the city over the past several months um, back when it was um, under the control of ISIS just changed hands recently, earlier this year, I believe. And this report is accusing the U.S. not only of the annihilation of of Raqqa, virtually destroying the city, it is also accusing the United States of war crimes in the indiscriminate bombardment, essentially reducing the city to rubble. And uh, the fact that this U.S.-led bombardment was in support of, essentially in support of the Rojava Kurds, in support of the... Syrian Democratic Forces, or the SDF, which is the sort of umbrella group which was created by the, uh, the militia of the Rojava Kurds, to uh, particularly to uh, coordinate with the Pentagon in their ground assault on ISIS. I mean, this is a, um, a fact which we have to look at, you know, because I mean, this, is, this is critical to understanding what's happening in northern Syria right now. I mean, the, the, the ground forces which were attempting to take the city from ISIS and eventually did take the city from ISIS... Um, the, the, the SDF were led by the Rojava Kurds di- in direct 
coordination with this criminal aerial assault by the United States, which virtually reduced the city to rubble. Clearly, the United States was trying to groom the um, the SDF and the Rojava Kurds as proxies. I'm not saying that the that the SDF gave up their autonomy. I understand the fact that they were facing, you know, I mean, ISIS was an entity bent on genocide, wanted to exterminate them, you know, crush their autonomous zone and um, and impose their, you know, extremely cruel totalitarian order uh, and you know, certainly completely wipe out their, you know, radical feminist left libertarian experiment in Rojava. So I understand the pressures which drove them into collaborating with U.S. imperialism. But let's not close our eyes to the fact that, in fact, they did. And let's not have any double standards about the pressures that drove the, the Rojava Kurds into an alliance with, um, with U.S. imperialism because they were up against a genocidal enemy in the face of ISIS, in the form of ISIS, were akin to the forces which drove the Free Syrian Army into their alliance with Turkey because they also needed outside help in a struggle against a genocidal entity, the Bashar Assad regime. So, uh, again, all of this is now leading to, you know, this sort of divide-and-conquer scam which is being played out in Syria by by Assad and Erdogan alike um, is now, you know... um, leading to the, the risk of, of a uh, Arab-Kurdish civil war in northern Syria. Finally, now ISIS is almost completely defeated in northern Syria. But, you know, the war against ISIS could just have its grim sequel in a, um, a Kurdish-Arab civil war, which would um, be in the interest of nobody except the dictators like Erdogan and Assad and the jihadists like Nusra and ISIS and the imperialist powers who are trying to exploit the situation for their own aims, such as Russia and the United States. So this is to be avoided at all costs. And, uh, you know, it's incumbent, particularly upon us here in places like New York City, you know, we aren't facing these same kind of pressures. We are not facing an imminent threat of genocide the way uh, the resistance in, uh, you know, whether Arab or Kurdish resistance in northern Syria was and is. So, you know, we don't have that excuse. We should get over this. And I just want to, um, the last thing I'm going to say before I I sign off for the evening is that uh, just yesterday, the Anarchist Book Fair was held here in um, in New York City at Judson Memorial Church in um, in Greenwich Village. It's always a great event. I'm really glad that they've been keeping the Anarchist Book Fair going for all of these years. And um, me and the group that I work with, Syria Solidarity, NYC, held a panel discussion at the book fair on building support for the Syrian revolution. And um, the group here in New York City, which is organizing in solidarity with the Rojava Kurds, Rojava Solidarity NYC, held their own panel on building support for um, the Rojava revolution and their struggle against ISIS and Turkey. So, and... You know, you would hope that these two groups would be working together, but unfortunately we aren't. I've been trying to get, you know, because I've I'm more involved in Syria solidarity, but I've also been involved somewhat in Rojava solidarity, NYC. And I've been trying to get these two groups to sit down and talk with each other to no avail. And I thought that this would be the perfect opportunity to do so. And initially the two 
um, panels were scheduled back to back in the same place, which would have been the ideal forum to, you know, start the conversation and keep it going. You know, start first, it was going to be the uh, uh, serious solidarity NYC panel immediately followed in the same place by the Rojava solidarity NYC panel, but then they changed the schedule. I don't know why they did this so that the two panels were actually held at the same time. So an actual conscious obstacle <laughs> to us having the, um, the dialogue that needs to be had around this issue. But before I sign off, I'm just going to say that, you know, I did actually, um, uh, talk with the, uh, with the folks from Rojava Solidarity NYC, and they agreed in principle that sometime this year we should have a joint event where, you know, our, our two groups will sit down and, um, you know, have some speakers and, um, and have a discussion and hash things out and see if we can come to some kind of an understanding, some kind of a common position. Uh, and, you know, understand that, you know, hopefully, you know, that we support the Syrian revolution. We support the Rojava revolution. We oppose Assad. We oppose Erdogan. And obviously we oppose ISIS and the jihadists. And uh, that we should be working against rather than playing into the dynamics which are leading towards a, um, an Arab-Kurdish ethnic war in northern Syria. So, um uh, continue to watch this spot. Hopefully that event is going to be happening uh, later on this year before 2018 is out. Hopefully that event is going to be happening at the base, the anarchist uh, info shop and meeting space in uh, Bushwick out in Brooklyn. So uh, watch that spot. Hopefully that's going to be happening. Meanwhile, um, Serious Solidarity NYC, we are continuing to hold our vigils in Union Square, our vigils for peace in Syria and solidarity with the Syrian revolution and against Assad and against Putin and against all the imperial powers which are meddling in Syria. Uh, we meet at 6 p.m. at the southern end of Union Square Park um, at uh, 14th Street and Broadway um, every Friday. So please come out and join us. If you want more information on uh, any of this, please just check out my website, countervortex.org. All the information you're looking for to document anything I've said um, in this podcast is there. Check it out, countervortex.org. And this has indeed been the Counter Vortex with me, Bill Weinberg. Please support us on Patreon if you appreciate what we're uh, what we're doing here. And uh, join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and I'll rant on you again in two weeks. <laughs>